I need to go kill a giant spider real quick. It is coming at me. And <laughs> I must. I must end it. Hold on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Temperance Bones Brennan from the 2005 episode of Bones titled The Man on Death Row. The episode was directed by David Hugh Jones and written by Noah Hawley. Bones is played by Emily. Emily. Mm. <laughs> see, I was going to look this up. I was going to look up the pronunciation of this. I want to say Deschanel. Or Deschanel? I, see, Deschanel? I think it's Deschanel. Deschanel. Okay. Uh, Emily Deschanel. I was watching you watching the script as you were getting to that moment. I was like, "Here it comes, here it comes." <laughs> uh, I should have known it. I should have known it. Emily, sorry, you're a great actress. If you're listening, <laughs> I think I mispronounced that in my head most of the time I've ever read it. Okay. So uh, this uh, this episode was actually uh, recommended to us by a listener, listener Zach. So. Thanks, listener Zach. Thank you. A little bit of trivia here about the series. Bones has been on the air for 10 seasons at this point, with season 11 coming soon. And the series is loosely based on the life and writings of Kathy Reichs. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced, R-E-I-C-H-S, who is a crime writer, an academic, and a forensic anthropologist. So, uh, so when was the first time that you heard about Bones or saw Bones? I think I have pretty much... Follow this from the beginning, and it is very similar to the reason I watched Castle. I was following a, a Joss Whedon alum to a new series. <laughs> so I followed Nathan Fillion from Firefly to Castle, and I followed uh, David Boreanaz from Angel to Bones. He is and, a really, really good actor. And so I've kind of followed it. I think I've probably seen every episode, barring any times my DVR died. You know, it's one that I just have on the season pass on the DVR. And... So, uh, I, I might not always watch it immediately when it's on the recordings, but it's one that my wife and I will eventually get around to watching when we have some downtime. That's amazing. It's a, it's dedication. 11 seasons. My goodness. Yeah. And it's, like I said, it's just one that sometimes we'll have a few episodes, uh, built up and for a date night when we're just relaxing, we may just have it on. Do you feel like it, do you feel like it's, uh, kept its strength over 11 seasons? You know, I've, I haven't gone back and rewatched. I would say there's probably been some some dips, uh, some ebbs and flows where uh-huh. we're kind of saying, nah, it's it's not quite as good as it was, but then it picked back up. So yeah. um, I wouldn't say it's been constantly um, good, but it's always been good enough that we haven't taken it off of the season pass on the DVR. Yeah. Uh, well, I have not seen every episode of Bones. I... Um I was aware of Bones. I actually really like detective, uh, kind of detective TV series. Uh, I never have enough time to watch as many shows as I wish that I could. Um, and this one was never really on my radar. The first time that I watched Bones was I was preparing for, uh, to give a talk at a conference at uh, Utah Valley University about autism in popular culture, representations of autism in popular uh, television. And so I just binged on lots of TV shows with uh, characters uh, either expressly diagnosed with autism or with strong autistic tendencies. And, uh, and Temperance Brennan is one of the, I think, most famous. Uh, she has a very peculiar personality. And uh, I think that the, the creators of the show have said that, you know, she doesn't, you know, we don't, we wouldn't say that she has autism or Asperger's or something, but it's pretty clear that she has a lot of autistic tendencies uh, that I find, I find really interesting. Um, so I watched about, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 episodes of the first season. And then I realized, I realized that there were, you know, 10 at that time, <laughs> nine or 10 seasons of this. <laughs> And I actually, I watched a lot that the, I watched a lot of TV over a few months, but I could not, I couldn't, I had just, I'd just been through, uh, you know, every season of Parenthood and the first three seasons of Big Bang Theory and a bunch of seasons of The Middle. Uh, I'd seen all of Sherlock and Doc Martin, and it was just uh, like all of this in the in a span of maybe three months. And I got to Bones, and I just it was it was a hill too high to <laughs> too tall to climb. 
Uh, even although I really do, I really did enjoy this season. I love her as a character. I think she's brilliant, and um, so I was really excited to talk about it. But I, I don't have, uh, I don't know all of the history of this. I really just know the first, you know, a, a ten, nine or ten episodes. And fortunately, this episode for today is uh, episode seven of season one. So I have, I, I don't know anything about what happens in the future. I mean, I know a few things that people have told me, but I found it easier to spread my binge across the decade. Yeah. <laughs> Would you recommend me plowing through all 10 or 11 seasons? Or uh, is there like a jumping in point that would make sense? Or No, I'd or say, I'd say you, for some of the most rewarding long-term arcs, you should probably want to push through um, okay. for some of the changes that happen to the characters. This is a series that I'd say is probably worth um, a a binge and going through. Um, but there are some series that I'd always be willing to go back and watch again, a West wing, uh, or Frasier, you know, where I could probably watch right. the entire run more than once. I don't know that this is one of those angel okay. that the one that inspired me to follow David Boreanaz over this one is one I've probably seen every episode of twice, but uh-huh. I, I don't know that I'd do that with bones, but I, like I said, I've watched it at least most of the episodes, if not all. This is totally off topic. Well, um, almost, almost totally off topic. <laughs> it's barely hanging on to the topic by like the skin of its teeth. But uh, uh, would you would you put uh, Angel uh, higher than Buffy? Would you rank Angel higher than Buffy or lower than Buffy on your scale of uh, TV series? Higher than Buffy. I higher than Buffy. Okay. Confidently. Really? Yes. Oh, interesting. And I imagine there will be some who have different opinions that may... <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> that there would be. Some may, may have some comments under this thread about uh, about Buffy. These would be this would be Buffy the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, which was created by Joss Whedon, and then the, a spinoff series called Angel that uh, stars David Boreanaz. Is that his name? Yes, and he and, is one of the two main stars of Bones. Right, he plays Agent, Agent <laughs> Bringing this back to the Bones. topic. Yes. So. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'll give a quick spoiler-free synopsis. Uh, Bones is the, the the long arc of the series is uh, there's a woman. Uh, she's a forensic anthropologist, a brilliant scientist, but sort of socially awkward, let's say. She is hired by the FBI as a consultant. Uh, the agent that is supposed to work with her, his name is Booth. And uh, Booth and Bones, uh, he calls her Bones because she studies Bones. They have this interesting relationship in which uh, she is kind of a cold, logical scientist, and he is this kind of uh, goes-by-his-gut-feeling FBI agent, and they have to figure out a way to work together, and they do, and uh, they have a really great relationship. They work with some really interesting people in the lab. And uh, so the that's sort of the premise of the series. This episode specifically begins with uh, Booth uh, being approached by a lawyer who is defending, uh, appe- uh, appealing the case of a man on death row. Uh, and, and Booth had arrested this guy years before. And she sort of uh, plants a seed of doubt in Booth's head about whether this man is guilty or not, um, and he's going to be executed within 30 hours. And so Booth goes to Bones to ask for help in, in trying, just trying to kind of get to the bottom of uh, what really happened um, to kind of clear his head of doubt. So if that sounds interesting to you, uh, Bones is all of the seasons of Bones, uh, almost all of the seasons of Bones are on Netflix. We have one through 10 or one through nine, one through 10. One through 10. I think one through nine right now. One through, I imagine the 10th will be there soon. One through nine is on Netflix. Uh, and we will, uh, as always, have show notes to all of the things that we talk about uh, in this episode. So you can go uh, check out Bones. This is, we'll be talking about season one, episode five, The Man on, season one, episode seven, The Man on Death Row. All right. Uh, and now comes the much more spoilery synopsis. So, FBI agent Seely Booth and forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan exchange some witty banter while she applies for a concealed weapon permit and he immediately <laughs> denies her request. <laughs> 
A, uh, then a defense lawyer asks Booth to help overturn the conviction of Howard Epps, a man that Booth caught and who is on death row. Booth visits Epps, and he is unconvinced that Epps is innocent, but as Todd said, there's a seat of doubt, and he convinces Brennan uh, as a pro bono case over the weekend to look over the evidence from the crime, and they only have 30 hours until he's going to be executed. Soon, Brennan and her staff find some issues with the evidence from seven years ago. They figure out um, that what the original prosecutors thought was a phone number were actually numbers to help the victim set up a location and time for a date. They also realized that the victim was killed and then moved to the location where the body was found, though the original case uh, was, it, it, it was thought that the location where the body was found was the site of the murder. Uh, Booth visits the family of the victim and David Ross, who is the victim's godfather and the family's lawyer. Booth suspects that Ross may have had a relationship with the victim. The body is exhumed and the team confirms that Ross had relations with the victim the night of the murder. The judge over the case is unwilling to delay the execution based on this evidence. Uh, Booth interrogates Ross and he admits to having had relations with the victim that night, but he insists he is innocent of the murder. He says that she ran away from him because she panicked after their, their encounter, uh, but he waited for hours and she never returned. With new evidence from the exhumed body, the team is able to locate the original site of the murder at a marsh, and with an FBI team, they go to look for the murder weapon in the hopes that it will be linked back to Ross, the victim's godfather. Along with the murder weapon, they find two bodies in the marsh. They deduce that Epps was, in fact, a serial killer. He had witnessed the argument in the park when the victim ran away and took advantage of the moment to uh, murder the victim. And then after killing her, he took her body back to where the argument had taken place, hoping that the crime would be pinned onto the man that he'd seen arguing with the girl. And the reason that he uh, was pushing so hard for this case to be investigated was that he was hoping that they would go and find his other victims so that his execution would be stayed while he was the primary suspect in two new murder investigations. They confront Epps in the prison where he implicitly confirms their theory but does not actually uh, uh, admit that he uh, had killed anyone else or was uh, the killer of the, the victim that they were looking into. He tries to shake Brennan's hand to thank her for prolonging his life, but she slams it onto the edge of the table, seemingly breaking his wrist, and then Booth and Bones commiserate <laughs> over drinks about guilt, life, and the death penalty. All right, nice work. Thank you. You've covered all. You've covered it all. <laughs> yes. So, thanks for listening to this episode of... Uh... <laughs> No, um, I really love uh, Temperance Brennan. I think she's a really interesting character for a lot of different reasons. Uh, what is it that you like about about her, though? Um, I think what I like most is actually her interaction, particularly with Booth, but with all of the characters, where she has um, this kind of prickly nature, I guess I would say. Uh-huh. Um, but it brings out uh, the best in everyone else, even though they are sometimes exasperated with her. <laughs> And you can understand their exasperation. Um, she has, like, one of the, I guess, probably the most common quote in the series is, I don't know what that means, whenever it makes a reference right. to anything from popular culture, um, or even <laughs> some, <laughs> like, uh, deeper social interactions. Um, she just kind of uh, is oblivious to those things. But she is completely driven to find uh, truth, and she is driven by logic and evidence. She won't let any of her, her team of scientists make suppositions uh, about um, what happened until there's evidence to back up those those guesses. Um, and so the, I guess there's just really nice interplay between her and all of the characters. It's really interesting because she comes off as so kind of cold and calculating, and she's socially awkward. She doesn't connect with people very well. One of the, one of the um, themes that runs through this episode is that it's the weekend, and everybody has plans for the weekend except for her and uh, maybe one of the people that works in the lab, Zach, who is sort of a, a <laughs> more intense. A kindred spirit with, with Brendan. He's sort of a more intense, even, um, even more intense version of her. And I think that at some point he is diag- they, they do like give him a diagnosis of Asperger's or something, but he's kind of a savant. Uh, and, uh, but everybody else is um, thinking about their plans for the weekend. Angela, who is the artist that works in the lab, but my uh, artist who works in this lab, we, we maybe should explain for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, she will do things like uh, facial reconstructions based on right. the bones that they have, and she will help to recreate uh, crime scenes or probable uh, ways that murders happen through this incredible computer that they have yeah. that, that creates three <laughs> D simulations of environments and uh, models of, of uh, you know based on heights and and bone yeah. structures of how people could have moved to defend themselves in an attack or how an attack could have taken place. 
Yeah, so she um, she has a date that night. She's kind of hypersexualized, and um, I mean, from the moment that you meet her in season one, episode one, it's pretty clear what her job is <laughs> on the series, which is to uh, be really pretty and to um, be kind of a social what like a foil to Temperance or something. She she's 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 Temperance's opposite in that. She's socially confident. Right, extremely like, uh, but, but but sort of beyond socially she's, confident. She's she's also the like you said though she's the artsy one, whereas Brennan is the science, you know, the uber scientific one, and so they are right. They're best friends, but they're polar opposites in personality and function. Right. Though um, she does, she changes quite a bit through the series when you write out she? all ten ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was I saying? So, it, but but the thing is, is that temperance also has this really deep uh, humanity to her that I don't think that we see in um, other characters. I mean, it's not uncommon to see uh, characters that are kind of socially awkward. So like all those characters that I mentioned earlier, um, Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory or Sherlock in in the BBC version uh, series Sherlock, um, who are also really kind of prickly, uh, but you don't... It's it's a little bit harder to see them... Uh, feeling passionate about just humanity and life in the way that Temperance does in the series when they're talking about the um, the, the death penalty at the end yeah, she, uh, of this episode. It goes well beyond what you'd expect to have from just a, you know, the the raw data kind of individual that we uh, get for most of the episode. And she, she'll try to tie it back into science. So they say, uh, you know, oh, I oppose the death penalty. And um, and Booth says, well, you know, I don't know if I oppose the death penalty. And, and Temperance says, no, I'm all in favor of the death penalty because I guess she had done, she had done research in Rwanda or she had done some, uh, work in Rwanda after some massacres. And she said, you know, anybody who's going to, uh, decapitate children while they're sitting in their desks at school doesn't deserve to live with the rest of us. And, um, and she talks about how our DNA is all so similar and that when one of us dies, it's, it's a part of all of us that dies. And there's some it's kind of a deep-seated spirituality to her that she ties to science in interesting ways. Uh, but she's not, she's not only this like, cold, uh, heartless detective, uh, but people and social interaction to her are just perplexing. Uh, yeah, and I guess uh, one of the two foils, or major foils that we have for her is... Is Angela, and the other one is Seely Booth, who right. is religious. He is, like you said, he 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 runs his investigations often by gut. Uh, I mean, it's he he's always looking for all of the proof, you know, and the the hard proof that will get the conviction. But he is willing to start looking at suspects based on his gut, uh, his, his instinct. So, like when he's meeting with the family. And they're the godfather of the victim and the, the lawyer who they say was going to be um, helping their daughter get into law school. He immediately just kind of from a gut instinct assumes that there was something more going on between him and, uh, and the victim. And he's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Brett, if he had like, it, it, throughout the series, like anytime he would, if he had said anything like that to Brennan, she would say, there's no proof for that. <laughs> you right. know, until the proof was obtained, she, she wouldn't want to, allow those kinds of conjecture to influence uh, her process. Her process is only about, like, after we have data, we then can make conjecture based on this. <laughs> At some point, somebody in the lab says, I wonder if, and she says, let's pretend we are objective scientists and not indulge in conjecture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Booth is very much, um, I will go look for the proof to back up my gut, and she is... The I'm go, I'm going to find the proof, and at that point we can build um, a theory around that proof. Yeah, it just you see it so clearly in this opening um, conversation between them when she's applying to have a a gun, and he's asking her. It's almost a reversal of the um, of the I keep talking about Big Bang Theory, but the the scene when uh, Sheldon and Penny are in the hospital, and he's filling out her medical form. Do you remember this? I'm not familiar with that scene. Oh. So, he, anyway, he, he has to fill out her medical information, and he's like, uh, you know, what is your name? What, 
what happened to you? And she's like, you already know you were, <laughs> you were with me, but he feels because he's so, because his mind is so sort of logical and straightforward that he feels bound to ask all the questions at the beginning of this episode of, of bones. Uh, Booth is doing that to, to temperance, but he's just messing with her and she, she just wants a gun uh, because they've been in a they the episode before they'd had some dangerous situation where she had needed a gun and hadn't had one and ended up taking Booth's gun and uh, shooting somebody in the leg I think yeah so he's asking her all these questions about why she wants a gun and she's telling and her him, answer is to shoot people to shoot <laughs> yes <laughs> and then he writes down uh, self defense no <laughs> no I I, I want to shoot people. He's just like, wrong answer. Yeah. And then in the end, he just denies it. Yeah, he doesn't even take it anywhere else. He just stamps the denied on it. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, one of the the questions in the run was, have you ever been charged with a felony? (laughs) She said, well, charged, but I was never convicted. And it was that earlier incident where she shot shot someone. Right. And it was he, him that had convicted her. That had charged her. Charged her. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of, he messes with her because he thinks it's fun and he likes her and she is totally perplexed by all human interaction, it seems like. Especially humor. She does not understand yeah. his sarcasm or... Like, for us watching it, we can tell from the get-go he is, he is toying with her. Right. Um, and she just doesn't see it. And, uh... Oh, what was I going to say? It was going to be good. Hang on. It's going to come to me. No, I lost it. <laughs> I, I have a question dealing with that uh, misunderstanding or not comprehending humor in that way todd you you mentioned that you were studying a lot of characters that fell into that category why is it that those characters especially in the last 10 15 years are some of the most popular characters on television why why have people kind of gravitated towards that representation real quick before todd answers i just want to share one of my favorite moments from the tv show community in which there's a character named abed who is all the things that we're talking about. Um, somewhere, uh, he's awkward socially, he's driven by logic, he, he has this fantastic amount of knowledge about the things that he's interested in and doesn't care about anything else. Sure. And there's one episode where they're spoofing a Law & Order, I think it is a Law & Order episode, <laughs> and uh, Dean Pelton just looks at him and says, Abed, you're weird, solve the crime. And oh. he just, and he just, all, he like tilts his head to the side, his, to the side and starts muttering to himself about patterns, like seeing patterns everywhere, the same right. thing. And then, but what he ends up talking about is, uh, uh, people somewhere on the, the autism spectrum solving crimes on every network television show <laughs> and on every, on every cable drama. <laughs> and then he walks out of the room and he hasn't, he hasn't said anything about the crime at hand, right. but he's just talking about that these characters as our producer Andrew was just noting, are quite prevalent in our popular culture for probably about 15 years now. Yeah, so um, I'll try to give you the short answer of this. This is um, actually one of my sort of small obsessions. <laughs> so, uh, but in order for somebody to be on the autism spectrum, they have to, there are sort of three pillars of autism, and these, this is what we see in all of these characters. One is uh, they struggle with uh, communication in some way. So this could be somebody that's like completely nonverbal, uh, like in the there was a series called Touch with Keith, Kiefer Sutherland, in which he he had a son who was totally nonverbal, uh, and then people on the sort of what we call high functioning end of the spectrum are people like Temperance Brennan, who they just don't under there are there's something about communication that they don't understand, and humor is really a common one. So uh, they think very literally, and so they have a hard time with metaphor. Uh, they have a really hard time with uh, humor and plays on words and things like that. It's just part of kind of who they are and the way that their brains are wired. They have a hard time with a certain kind of communication. Uh, they have a they, so that's like sort of pillar number one. Pillar number two would be struggling with social interaction, and so this can go from people who are like completely incapable of any social interaction. Uh, two people like Temperance who are just sort of perplexed by it, but very curious about it. And you see her asking. Uh, all through this episode. So, you know, what would you be doing on the weekend if you weren't here solving this crime with me and kind of observing other people? There's a there's a really great Christmas episode when she's watching uh, through glass uh, all of these people interacting with their family members through glass. And so there's this kind of struggle with um, with social interaction. And then the third one is this really broad, deep knowledge of some uh, some aspect of 
the world that is either broader or deeper or stranger than we would consider normal. So for her, it's forensic anthropology. For Sheldon Cooper, it's uh, astrophysics. Um, for Abed on community, it's popular culture, filmmaking, and television. Right, and for Sherlock, it's you know everything under the sun, except it's except it's not. Um, so, so that's, so when I say she has autistic tendencies, like she fits so clearly the model of, uh, you know, high functioning autism or Asperger's, what, what we used to call Asperger's. Um, so why is it so popular? I don't, I don't know. Um, except that rates of autism just have skyrocketed over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, and it's just exponentially growing every year all through the world. Uh, and it's not only because we we have you know better ability to detect it and people are being diagnosed younger. It really seems like, and uh, scientists just say over and over again, it really seems like this is becoming more and more and more prevalent in our society. And now it's like you know in Utah where we live, it's you know one in twenty five boys or one in twenty four boys has autism or some form of autism. So I don't think it's surprising that we that we find ourselves drawn to. Um, Especially when we struggle so much with the day to day, I have two kids on the autism spectrum, and like life is hard. It's really, really, really hard sometimes, and sometimes it's hard to to feel really hopeful about your child's future when you see that they're just odd, and other kids don't you know play with them as much, and they don't get invited to birthday parties, and they struggle in school. And there's something really hopeful about seeing someone like Temperance Brennan on TV, who is also you know awkward and uh, kind of a social misfit. But she is um, amazing, she's brilliant, she's strong, uh, and she's able to form really strong relationships with the people around her. Uh, And I have talked to so many people who have said, oh, I love watching uh, Bones because Temperance Brennan is exactly like my sister, or is exactly like my daughter, or is exactly like my spouse, or I love watching The Big Bang Theory because that's my cousin, and it helps me to understand him in a way that I never was able to before. That's maybe one reason why these characters are so popular right now. And the other thing is that we all struggle with these things on some level. It's not, and that's why it's called an autism spectrum, is because at some point we all struggle with communication and social interaction and our own kind of quirky interests. And so I think that it's easy for us to see something of ourselves in these people, maybe um, magnified in different ways. But uh, but yeah, we've we've all felt like we're the odd one in the room. Right. Um, I was going to say also from, from the production side, uh, and the writing side, I think you come instantly with some character conflict that is inherent to the characters, but they, they can all still like each other. So it doesn't become uncomfortable when they're having the conflict, I guess, um, where the characters can all be likable. They can all, uh, enjoy each other, but also be frustrated with each other. And that is, I think, a necessary ingredient when you have an ensemble show that's supposed to be running for years and years. And it can be difficult to manage without making some of the characters completely unbelievable or unlikable. Right. And and the the reason why these characters work so well is also because of the people who work with them. So, you know, today we're talking about Brennan uh, Bones, but there, but there is no Bones without Booth. Just like there's no Sherlock without Watson. There's no Sheldon without Penny. They, these, all of these characters have to have somebody with them. And I think that when we see that combination of uh, Temperance's kind of cold logic and Booth's kind of deep spirituality and maybe um, willingness to go with his gut uh, and the way that they balance with each other, I think that there's something uh, in the way that we all kind of approach the world. It's like they've separated two parts of our psyche and put them in different characters. Uh, but we all kind of struggle with that balance. Yeah, what you're you're saying uh, made me think of one of my favorite analyses of the original Star Trek uh, series. Um, oh, perfect example, with- Spock and uh, Kirk. And Kirk, but also in Bones. And they, they said um, Spock is Logos and Bones is uh, Pathos sure. and uh, Kirk is Ethos. And, and you see these three kind of circle each other and, you know, vie for, for dominance. And one's pushing emotion, one's pu- pushing pure logic, and the other... Is pushing, uh, you know, duty or, or ethics. Right. And, you, know, you, the, you you might want to break that down a smidge when you just went to <laughs> logos, ethos, and pathos. <laughs> I see. Uh, so so if you've ever had to study rhetoric, you've come across these terms, but it is 
if you're lucky, long enough that you may have forgotten <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, what each one of them are. Um, these go back to ancient Greek arguments about the ways that we try and convince people. And logos is logic, that we try and convince people through logic. The word. Pathos is uh, emotion, that we make emotional appeals to try and convince people to see things our way. And then ethos is about either the, the ethics or the um, the rightness or the... Uh, even like the the good reputation of the person making the argument being part of that. I mean, the, the ethos is a little harder to to nail down, but it's it's um, those, those things I was just mentioning. So they're all different ways. And if you think about like politicians, you can see all these different appeals happen when they're trying to get you to vote a certain way. Sure. Uh, um, and so uh, the argument that I I think I may have heard this on a podcast I've mentioned a few times, Mission Log, was that. You know, Spock is obviously pure logic. We always hear that, but then they they applied the other two to to Kirk and Bones and said we are kind of seeing some some elements of um, kind of all communication when you're trying to convince people to to behave in certain ways or see the world in a certain way. You you tend to use one of those three, and they all kind of play out um, with those three characters from Star Trek as uh, representative of the different ends of, of those, and with so. If we're applying that to this discussion, Bones would clearly be uh, logic, and Booth is much more about emotion. Yeah, and it's I think it's a really powerful uh, device to kind of split those things into different characters and to be able to see, even if, even if it makes a character on some level less believable, um, I think it's important to, to kind of give, uh, give us as an, as an audience distance and be able to kind of explore both of those things as separate things, when in reality they're all they're both kind of battling for position inside of us all the time. Um, right. Which is not and to say that I think that uh, either Bones or Booth are unbelievable because they are uh, they're both totally believable characters to me. Yeah, and I was gonna say um, where you were saying like they may become one note if that's all they are. I think. What we see in this show is that they're they're dominantly, uh, right. you know, in this direction. Which, like you said, everyone has all of those. But some of us, I'm sure we all know people who seem more guided by emotion or more guided by by logic. Sure. I mean, the the uh, t- Bones's uh, Temperance's, um, you know, breaking the guy's wrist at the end. That's an emotional response. He's he's trying to touch her hand or something. Uh, yeah, he's. I think he's trying to shake her hand and say thank you for right. saving my life. And she's so disgusted like, by him. Here. She's totally repulsed and has a, a totally, you know, human response, emotional response, and uh, breaks his <laughs> breaks his wrist. Well, he is what she's like. Her defense of the death penalty. So there's a debate between the the lawyer who gets them to look into this case, who's against any death penalty, and and Bones says, "Oh, I'm all for the death penalty, but you, we just need to be perfectly sure that the person were." Or convicting or, or sending to the penalty has done the things that they're accused of, right. and if there's room for doubt, that shouldn't happen. And he is, you know, an exemplar that she would have used. The serial killer is clearly someone that she'd be comfortable with, uh, you know, being sent uh, to to the death penalty. And similarly, Booth, uh, you know, his his boss when he starts looking into this case, his boss says, "Do you have a moral issue with the death penalty?" And he says, no, but there should be no room for doubt. Right. There, there's no room for doubt with it, for the death penalty. We have to be 100% certain. Which is why the at the very end, when they realize that Epps is the murderer and that he's a serial killer and that he's done this before, and if they just don't make the phone call for a half an hour, he'll be dead. Which is what they both, in, in theory, believe, right? They both believe in the death penalty in the case of somebody for which there is no doubt... Uh, as to their guilt, and and yet they they hesitate, and the reason that they hesitate is because uh, Temperance wants to know the story of these other two women that they find in the in the in the swamp, and if he gets the death penalty, then the case will be sort of closed or something. Isn't she says something about these women? They deserve their story needs to be told. This deserves to be investigated. Uh, as sort of a full investigation, uh, and it won't happen if he gets the death penalty. And Booth has a trust in the system. Like, he, he's a representative of the government, he's a representative of the FBI, and he 
implicitly and explicitly trusts that system. And if he was to circumvent it, because even if it's for truth, you know, he knows that this person was a serial killer, he'd still be um, preventing the system from running its course. Yeah. So what do you think are, if you were to sort of boil down Temperance Brennan's motivation as a character, what would you say that it is that drives her? Uh, she, it's the search for truth and, uh, empirical explicit truth in all things. She doesn't want any of the cases to be based on conjecture or guesses or even circumstantial evidence that all point to the same direction. She wants, um, and and she said, I mean, throughout the series, you know, the bones will tell the story. Like we will find the evidence on these bones as to what attack happened. How did this victim, you know, this person die if it was from, from violence, and so it's always um, the search for truth, and she's funneled that, which I think she could have, you know, she could have been a good scientist, this character, in, you know, any number of fields, but she funneled it into this particular area of interest. And uh, at first, I think she's she's just an anthropologist that's studying, you know, ancient, uh, ancient civilizations and, right. you know, ancient bones. Mm-hmm. But uh, her skills in kind of telling the stories, the truth of what happened to these ancient bones is what gets the FBI interested in having her consult on more modern cases. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I really, the more I think about her, the more I like her as a character, uh, which is not always the case with all characters. Right. Um, <laughs> some turn out to be a little shallower. <laughs> where, where, um, and I think this would be the quality of the actor. Like some, some actors could turn a character without a whole lot there into something that's pleasant to watch. Yeah. And, and you can just kind of write out the enjoyment of their performance. But when you start to take apart what's really being presented to us through the writing and through, um, you know, the stories that they're given, there's, they're kind of, uh, you know, a Twinkie. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> it, it can be pleasant, but there's not much there. And when you start to think about what you've done in consuming it, you, you question your life choices. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this idea of uh, that the science leads us to the story. Because it seems like science often is about the data. And, and sometimes we forget that that really as human beings, one of the things that we do better than anything else is tell stories. And it's the way that we make sense of the world around us. And the very best scientists are scientists who are able to uh, take data and use data to tell a story. And there's something about temperance as a character on her own, but also in her relationship with Booth. And this, it is a desire for truth, but it's a desire for a really specific kind of truth uh, that has to do with telling the stories of these people who have been murdered. And there's something, I don't know, there's something really deep and, um, and human about that, that, that I love, uh, about her as a character. And I, think, I mean, we've already said the way that she plays off of Booth and, and Angela, who is her best friend. Um, but they, they introduce other characters out the series later on. There's a character named Sweets who, is a psychologist who does psychological profiles oh. of of people in the cases, and she is always at odds with him. And she, because <laughs> <laughs> she will always call anything he does. Like if he claims, uh, you know, she's all about the science. And if he ever says something about like there being science in what he does, she'll always kind of frown and say, "Well, a soft a science." Soft science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, to what he does, so she's um, she has an arrogance uh, and uh, a confidence in what she does that she cannot apply to many other people's areas of endeavors. Yeah. It reminds me, I, I think I've talked about my recent small obsession with uh, caves and cave paintings, prehistoric cave paintings. <laughs> but I was watching this film called um, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is on Netflix, and it is absolutely stunning. It's a documentary by um, Werner Herzog uh, about this cave in southern France that they found called Chauvet that has the oldest cave paintings that we know of. Um, they're like 30... 30- 2,000 years old. And he's interviewing one of the scientists, and the scientist is talking about, oh, yeah, we use this uh, this technology to map every millimeter of this cave, and we know all the points. There's 4 million points. And, um, and Herzog interrupts him, and he says, but do, they, but do they dream? What are their hopes? What are their families like? And the guy looks at him, and he says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And, and Herzog, you can tell that he's just driven by this, trying to get to the, the inner kind of spiritual life of these people who felt driven to paint 
these absolutely stunning uh, pictures of huge mammals on the side of walls. Um, and the resistance on the part of this scientist who then, after further questioning, admits that he spent um, four or five days in the caves and he eventually had to stop because at night he was having, he was dreaming about lions every night, the paintings of lions and real lions and that the being in the cave had kind of uh, overcome him. Like spiritually, he felt spiritually kind of overcome and he had to spend time processing it. And it was Herzog's questioning about dreams and hope and family and this inner life that brings brings this story out of the scientist and so Brennan says that she's all about truth and you know cold facts but really what she's doing is she's she's creating the story and then she has other characters like Angela and Booth to come along and sort of fill in this inner life of these people and that's really beautiful I like it and that's one thing I think um the series this is one of those series where uh, like each episode is, uh, like I can't remember the storylines of many episodes, individual uh-huh. episodes, but I remember the larger story arcs for the character, the, the main characters. Um, kind of like what I think we said that about Castle. Yeah, there's a lot of a similarity between Castle and Bones. I think. Yes, <laughs> there's there's an awful lot of similarity, uh, but um, the way that her relationships, uh, grow and deepen with all of these, um, surrounding characters. And they even start to introduce like a rotating cast of interns, uh-huh. who they call the squinterns, uh, <laughs> so that, you know, each week you could have a different voice that is being added to the conversation about the victims or about how to approach the science of, of the particular case. And they all have their own distinct personalities, but they they recur. So, you know, in each season, you know, one of the interns will be there for, you know, four episodes or five uh-huh. episodes. And, um, they, it, it's interesting to watch the series because they're able to develop unique relationships with each of those voices that they add in and the way that they interact primarily with bones more so than, than any of the others, um, becomes kind of the defining characteristics for a lot of these characters. Huh. That's interesting. When did they? When did those interns start coming in? Would you say? I want to say it's in like the fourth or fifth season. Okay, so about fifteen years from now, and I'm, I feel like Bones is gonna is gonna turn into my Wheel of Time. <laughs> it's, yeah, have you read the Wheel of Time? I it's a it's a lifelong project. I've read maybe five or six of the Wheel of Time novels, and I just keep sort of. You know, every couple of years I'll get the next one and read it, and it takes me six months, and then I'll go for two or three more years without reading one. <laughs> yeah, I have not been able to commit to reading the first page yet because I just assume it'll set me down a path. That's going it's to... really, really, really good. And yes, but it's, it's it's going to take control of the back of my mind, like you said, for, yeah. for a decade plus as. I have other other things coming through. Occasionally, I'll I'll see I'll see it you know at the library or something, and I'll think, "Am I ready?" And then I'll go, "No, nah, it's not time. Let's wait." <laughs> so, Todd, within this one episode, uh, if you if this was the only episode that you'd watched of Bones, um, what would you? How would you define Bones' character, and what scenes would you say demonstrate that? Um, the very opening scene where she is uh, trying to get a, a permit to have a, a gun, I think says a lot about her, about her character. Right. She is just giving the shortest, most direct answer. Totally straightforward, right? Why do you want a gun? So I can shoot people. And, <laughs> and Booth is trying to kind of sugarcoat this in a way that would be appropriate for the... It, it feels like he's trying to help her to have a, a, a good application. Um which he then immediately denies. Well, I, I think also within that scene, you, uh, as a viewer, you can pick up on some cues from him, like his kind of, uh, I guess, smugness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his facial expressions that this isn't going the way she's expecting, but she's not picking up on that. <laughs> yeah, she has no idea. Um, I think the the scene when they talk about uh, the death penalty and whether they whether she agrees with the death penalty and she talks about the people in Rwanda... Um, which I think I I want to say that that was kind of what put her on the path that she is on working with the FBI was something to do with her research in Rwanda or that they had called her in to do some investigating in Rwanda. Am I making that up? You who have seen all eleven seasons of Bones, I have not seen the earliest seasons for about ten years, so. <laughs> 
it's hard for me to. It seems like there's some, like not un, not unlike Kate Beckett in Castle that there was some sort of. There's one case that kind of pulls her right. in, and they they never let go. And I'm quite <laughs> sh- and I'm pretty sure. And if listeners, and maybe there's some yeah. romantic tension, and yeah. Maybe. So you know, if there are lis- listeners who remember this specifically, but I I think that it is something about when she was in Rwanda and she saw this thing that that uh, kind of channeled her energy. Uh, which had previously been, you know, working on bones to find out the stories of long dead people, uh, now becomes an obsession with uh, looking at people's bones to to retell the stories of recently dead people. And I really like the point that you've made that um, it's interesting that one of her driving motivations is story, is narrative. Um, which, I, like you've said, we kind of disassociate from science often. Yeah, which, and I think she would maybe deny, right? If you said, yes. it's, if you said your job is to be a storyteller, she would say, no, it's not. I'm a scientist. <laughs> I find the facts. I find the facts. <laughs> uh, but there is something of storytelling in, in, in what she does. Um, so, but I, I think it, it, we see a, a side, we see a glimpse of kind of her deeper self uh, in that conversation that I really like. So maybe those maybe those two scenes, this opening scene where you can see her relationship with Booth, which is fundamental, obviously fundamental to the whole series, um, and then this underlying humanity that that makes what I want to say um, like legitimizes her her scientific logical mind or humanizes it in a way that um that makes her the strong compelling character that she is because that they could have with only a few changes they could have made this a far worse series <laughs> um yes it would not have lasted for a decade yeah so i i think do you have any other kind of favorite moments from her or things that kind of stand out as uh really highlighting her character inside of this this episode I would add in the uh, the scene where she breaks his, his <laughs> the bad guy's wrist, yeah, because yeah. uh, we get this explosion of emotion. Which w- there will be many episodes of Bones where you never get that, but every now and then they give you this kind of, uh, I guess, insight or, or um, evidence that she has these emotions that she she denies and that she she probably doesn't even understand them. Uh, and that's one of those moments that I think is. Um, I guess revealing of more going on to the, in the character than just kind of the uh, the classic kind of Spock type character. Yeah, and speaking of people with autism, there is so when my daughter was diagnosed with autism initially, I resisted it because I was under the impression that people with autism sort of have no inner life, right? They they seem sort of like robots. One of the uh, things that characterizes their speech is that their speech is often kind of ro- feels robotic. Um, and it's easy to fall in, into the misunderstanding that they that they're kind of emotionally void, uh, which leads to this idea that they're dangerous somehow or something. Um, and the true and and my daughter is nothing like that. She's she's warm. She's loving. She has a deep inner life. Um, the thing is, is that she she doesn't always understand her own inner life. I mean, it's there. It's obvious that it's there, but. Uh, the inner life of other people is totally perplexing to to people with autism, uh, and and often their own kind of their own inner life is is fe- they feel kind of like a black box to themselves, or and they're hard to it's hard for them to process their own emotions, and so I think we we see in her that she has this deep inner life, uh, which is something that I think we don't see in a lot of other characters um, in, in these popular shows that we've mentioned before. Uh, it's hard to see them uh, show their emotional side, and something that I love about about Brennan is that we see that um, it's not something that she always understands, uh, but it's always there, it, it, even if she's most of the time able to kind of keep it under the surface. Uh, we see enough of it to to recognize that it's there, and I think it's important. Um, and I, oh, I was just going to go ahead and say that if you do do your wheel of time type binge and finally commit <laughs> to, to this. Uh, one of the rewarding parts of the series is that as her relationships continue with a lot of these characters, you see her acknowledge um, sides of those relationships that you would not have seen her in the first yeah. season. Um, and she, I mean, it's, 
it's not as though a switch gets flipped or she's a different you know character from one season to the next. It's that um, with this kind of natural progression and their, I mean, sometimes it's almost coaching, I guess, their, uh-huh. or their willingness to work with her or understand her, let her be herself as they're, you know, still themselves. You see her kind of shift in the way that she interacts with some of um, these, these characters that that are there throughout the entire run. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes her so unique um, among all these, I mean, it's easy to sort of lump them all together and say, "Well, look, uh, Bones is just like Sherlock, who's just like uh, Sheldon Cooper, who's just like Spock. They're all the same." And the fact is that they're all different. Um, but one of the things that I really like about her is her curiosity about other people. Uh, and she's she's always asking questions about why why is that the way that it is or uh, why do you do that why do you act that way why do you think that why do you believe in God and you can see it, it just in the first you know ten episodes that I've seen uh, I can see her like you said it's not like a, a like a, a switch is flipped but you can see that there's potential for change because there's interest in other people and you would never see Sherlock asking genuine questions about what what is it that you do on the weekend or why is it that you believe in god i mean he's just he, that's so for, the the idea of him asking those kinds of questions sincerely of anybody is totally foreign uh but for her there is something about this she's it's almost like um i had a professor once at stanford who said um he said i envy people like you uh people spiritual people like you because uh, I feel spiritually tone deaf. Like I wish I could hear the music, but I can't. But I'm fascinated by it, and I like I wish that I could hear that, and I just I just can't. Uh, but he was so open and kind, and would ask me lots of questions. And there's something about uh, temperance that kind of feels like that. Like she's almost like socially tone deaf, but she wishes she could hear the music, and so she keeps asking questions. And you get the feeling that as she continues this kind of quest, that she that she will change. And, and I really like that. Uh, final note, there's two of the uh, the scientists that we haven't really mentioned yet. Uh, Hodgins, who... <laughs> he... He's... He definitely belongs with the scientists, where he is, he is driven by this quest for facts, but he brings such an effervescent joy yeah. uh, to the discovery and to the science that, you know, he's not just a clone of Brennan or... Um, or even Zach, who he's his, he's friends with, like he he just gets giddy at the thought of um, he's he's particularly an expert in bugs and particles, and so he loves the idea of you know using uh, bugs that are on decomposing bodies to try and help solve the case and to find any <laughs> so any evidence through those. Um, but it, it's just always a delight to watch um, his eyes light up when he gets to play with a new scientific gadget or, um, you know, <laughs> dissect a bug or something yeah. along those lines. And to me, that's just a wonderful counterpoint to, uh, to Brennan, who it remains fairly cool and emotionless. Um, as she's making her discoveries, you have um, Hodgins over on the side who is almost bouncing with joy right. at what he's able to do every day for his job. Mm-hmm. And you also have... Uh, Zach, who, as you said, is kind of an even uh, uh, more exaggerated version of Brennan, mm. uh, of Bones. He And he and Hodgins um, are best friends, and, you know, they, they always have contests to see who's king of the lab, to see who can, like, solve the, the issues that right. they're facing first, or find the most unique solution to the problems that they face. Um, but he, uh, Zach, is... Uh, I, would, I would just say even more socially awkward... Um, than Brennan, but he is less confident than Brennan. Right. It affects the the issues that he has with, you know, communication and social interaction and uh, this kind of different way that he sees the world. It affects his daily life more than it does uh, Brennan's. I mean, he, and he's he more, doesn't have a driver's license. He, you know, yeah. I mean, he really is sort of, um, I mean, he's I don't know, handicapped or in, in a way that she isn't. Right. And she... Um, it goes through her life with complete confidence and a surety that everything that she's doing is the right thing to be doing. Right. And he goes through life wondering outside of science and, and naming facts that we're discovering facts. Um, he goes through questioning everything. Yeah. Um, if he's, if he's doing it correctly or if, um, people are, are wondering about him. Yep. 
So even as we have some similarities across all of these characters, you know, you can point to something that relates. Um, I think there's distinct enough voices from, from all of them that you, uh, you have a strong ensemble yeah. with, on the show. Yep. It's a good show. Yes, and like uh, we said, there's plenty of it on Netflix, if that sounded interesting to you. <laughs> hours <laughs> so. and hours and hours. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a lot of hours of, uh, of bones. Um, I, would, I would just, <laughs> if people are interested thinking now, like, oh, maybe I'll go watch Bones. Uh, Bones is... Uh, you, it's not a dinner time show. Don't. You'll see a lot of dead bodies <laughs> in uh, various states of decomposition. So. You, you don't want to be eating, like settling down, like, oh, I'm going to relax tonight. I'm just going to go eat while I watch a show. Uh, like, wait five minutes into the show to yeah. start your meal. Because it's usually in the first five minutes they find a body in a fairly gross manner. Yeah. It's a... Uh, well, one of my dreams, can I tell you one of my dreams would be... To be on a show like Bones or Castle, but just be the person who finds the body because they're doing something weird. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to find the body and scream and end. I'm done with my it. acting career. Yes. <laughs> That's a really interesting dream to have. I mean, like the desire yeah. to find a body. That's pretty it's kind of crazy. You, I, I once, uh, my wife and I, we were helping out with the community service project at a cemetery, and we found a human skull. You that did? Was not, it was not where it was supposed to be. Oh, my goodness. Uh, my, wife, my wife was the one who first spotted it, and I did not know this, but they had to call in. Do you know the name of the person who gets called in when you find a human skull like that? The County Sexton. Really? The one that, yeah, that's got to come in to, uh, to deal with this. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And I, we made the reference right then that we felt like we were in an episode of Bones. Wow. That's amazing. But I, if I was in the episode, I'd want to be doing something different. Like, uh, I've, I mean, they, they often have people who are like... Uh, Out for a jog is a really common one. Yes. Uh, but sometimes it'll be like someone who's dumpster diving and is, is like teaching a new dumpster diver how to find the good food <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's in the dumpster. <laughs> And so one of them's like talking really confidently, and the other one's not sure what they're supposed to be doing here. That's that sort of situation. Uh, one last thing about this uh, episode that kind of stands out to me is um, I don't know about you, Todd, but with crime procedurals, often I am trying to think of who the bad guy is. And this is one where you kind of spend a lot of the episodes going, "It's the Godfather," "It's the Godfather," and then at the end you go, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> It, it wasn't him. So, I, I mean, in some ways, they, maybe they telegraph it by making it seem so uh, clear that it's going to be the Godfather, but at the same time, they don't give you another um, suspect. And so it really does kind of surprise you when it's back to the very first guy. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, but there, there is something about when you've seen so many of these, uh, it often, I'm, I'm not like a great detective, and I am still, you know, surprised. Uh, but a lot of the time I'll go, okay, it's not that person. It's, that it's not that person. It's gotta be <laughs> yeah, this it's never the person. first one, never the first one. Or sometimes it is the first one, but they always like circle around to the first one. Right. But, th- but that person would be like a legitimate suspect. The guy, this guy's already in jail and the whole premise of the thing is to prove that he's innocent and you think that that's what's going to happen. Uh, so yeah, I think, um, structurally it's a little bit different. Uh, but but it seems like I don't know. I'm thinking of episodes of Castle. It seems like in Castle, it's almost always the first person. But like, but the first person who's not even a, sus- a suspect, right? Right. It's or just, if it is the first person who's a suspect, they eliminate them as a suspect. But then later on, they find out why they should have yes. been a suspect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if they ever knock on the door and there's like a roommate, and the roommate's like, oh, oh yeah, like he's a great guy. I don't even know. It's the roommate. Right, <laughs> yes. but I mean, thinks yeah. it could be the roommate or the brother or the the spouse who comes and is so sad. And anyway, it's, I mean, it's not always the first one, but but it often is. It's just that the first the first suspect in here, you think is the Godfather, when really the first suspect is the guy that's already behind bars, been convicted of the crime. Yeah, I've learned that one of the easiest shorthands for these things is to note if there's anyone in it who you think you may have seen in something else at some point <laughs> as a small actor it's probably them because they got the bigger bit role in this episode <laughs> right they're not the ones finding the body at the beginning yes <laughs> and you never see yes, them again not, no that's not that guy uh yeah so i i guess it's one that uh that twist it really stands out if you're more familiar with the tropes of this TV, you know, this kind of TV show. But this kind of TV show is so pro- prevalent right now on 
on basic, you know, NBC, ABC, Fox, yeah. uh, kinds of kinds of stations that we're all familiar enough with the tropes of the genre that it was kind of a surprise when it was back to the original guy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's a it's kind of kind of uh, a pleasant surprise. All right, uh, real quick here before we wrap up, can I do a personal plug? Of course. I have a new book out, and it is called uh, The Ages of Iron Man, Essays on the Armored Avenger and Changing Times. And so if you have ever wanted to read 14 essays on Iron Man and the character's evolution from the <laughs> 1960s in comic books to today, there's a book for you out there now. Awesome. And we will, we will have the link on it for an, an Amazon link uh, in the show notes. Okay, if, if you've listened to 30-some-odd hours of this podcast... This might be a book you're interested in. <laughs> and if you're not interested in Iron Man, I could point you to some volumes on Superman, Wonder Woman, the X-Men, the Avengers. There you go. So, yeah, there's a few others out there. All right, anything else? No, I think that will wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review. It helps us with viewership and our feelings of self-worth. Links to the things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and that's also where you can find a list of all of our previous shows, and you can also suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or uh, making notes under the Facebook posts on facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And we are also on Twitter at protagonist pod at Todd K Mac and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And if you would like to buy a topic for us to discuss, we will move it to the front of our line and it will be one of the next episodes that we do. If you support us on patreon.com uh, slash protagonist or at protagonistpodcast.com, you can click on the donate button. Thank you again for listening. And we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. A couple of years ago, I, uh, I gave a talk. My goodness, what was that? Is the, opera, is, the, is the podcast ghost here? I didn't hear anything at all. Were you closing a door? No. Well, I thought that was someone on your end. <laughs> Todd, was that you? No, I had I my hear, arms I, folded. I didn't hear a door, door closed.